Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 20th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our legislative report. Details emerged this week on a major proposal to reform California's workers' compensation system. The proposal was secretly negotiated between major employers in California and union officials. A 45-point summary of the proposed legislation is now circulating among lobbyists and stakeholders, hoping to gain support prior to the end of the legislative year. The changes could be placed into Senate Bill 863, a workers' compensation measure being carried by Senator Ted Liu when labor union sponsors line up enough support. Business support is critical because Governor Brown has indicated that he would not sign legislation on the subject that's opposed by employers. The proposal includes an independent medical review system patterned after the existing IMR process implemented by the Department of Managed Health Care for resolving medical treatment issues. Thus, medical treatment disputes would be removed from the QME process. The WCAB's authority to adjudicate medical treatment disputes that are directed to the IMR process would also be eliminated. A second utilization review determination would be needed prior to an IMR. An independent bill review process would be established to take billing disagreements out of the jurisdiction of the WCAB system as well under rules similar to the IMR process. The spinal surgery second opinion process would be repealed and replaced by the IMR. A lien against an award for matters that are subject to IMR and IBR dispute resolution would be prohibited. The official medical fee schedule would be modified to adopt the RBRVS system. SB 863 would limit the home care services if these services were already being provided by a spouse prior to the injury. And a home care services utilization and fee schedule would be established. The proposal would increase permanent disability benefits by approximately $720 million per year phased in over a two-year period, and adjust the formula for calculating the number of weeks and weekly benefit amount so that compensation amounts more accurately reflect loss of future earnings. However, the rating formula would change to eliminate the future earning capacity and age modifier factors. SB 863 would also eliminate sleep disorder, sexual dysfunction, and psychological add-ons to primary injuries. Interpreters would be selected by the employer and also must be certified. The supplemental job displacement benefit rules would be changed so that benefits are triggered earlier but limit the time in which they can be used to two years. The California Applicant Attorneys Association immediately rejected the proposal. CAW claims that many workers will get less than they do under current law. Concerns were voiced over the elimination of impairment for loss of sleep, loss of sexual function, and for psychiatric conditions that flow from the injury. Ka further complains that the proposal eliminates any increase in the rating for a person who has diminished future earning capacity. Finally, the bill eliminates the right of the injured worker to secure documents, eliminates the right to select an interpreter of their choice, 
allows the employer to determine which medical issues a doctor can consider when there is a dispute over the severity of an injury and prohibits the use of reports from the treating doctors if they were not approved by the employer. Koss says that the effect of this and other provisions is to reduce the ratings and reduce benefits to injured workers. The vociferous objection voiced by Kaw is not a good sign that comp reform this year is as imminent as officials believe. But the California Department of Industrial Relations announced support for the comprehensive plan. Director Christine Baker said that representatives of labor and employers have been working vigorously to reform California's workers' compensation system before projected rate increases push California to a crisis situation. The result of this work, she says, is a comprehensive reform proposal that protects workers and employers by improving benefits and ending wasteful litigation. Over the last several months, labor and employer groups have met with the department to develop substantial reforms to the workers' compensation system in California. The department also met with hundreds of stakeholders at nine statewide public forums and identified systemic problems with the current system, including low permanent disability benefits, unnecessary delays in disputes in medical delivery, lack of standard fee schedules, poor oversight of medical provider networks, and liens that are overwhelming the courts. California employers paid $16.2 billion for workers' compensation in 2011, and the cost continues to rise. This week, the WCIRB recommended a 12.6% rate increase on California businesses, while industry analysts also predicted even greater hikes next year. Under the reform plan, up to $1.3 billion can be saved by reducing expenses for liens, out-of-network treatment disputes, and other unnecessary expenses. The savings would be divided between workers and employers. Injured workers would receive approximately $750 million in additional compensation benefits, and California employers would save up to $670 million. As a result of the unexpected fierce opposition, a special hearing of the Senate Labor and Industrial Relations Committee was postponed and no new date has been set. A spokesman for Senator Ted Liu, who is expected to introduce the proposal, said that his office phone had been ringing continuously with complaining calls. While the lawyers have aggressively attacked the proposal overhaul, Others' workers' compensation players are being more cautious about commenting before they've digested the 279-page bill. Mark Webb, a vice president of Pacific Compensation Insurance Company of Thousand Oaks, said that the insurance industry is still evaluating the proposal. The first reaction from the applicant's attorneys, he said, has thrown everyone for a loop. Nevertheless, Webb stressed that the deal is far from dead and proponents continue to meet in the Capitol with members to explain the value of their plan. And now our fraud report. Cybercrime is the next frontier in medical fraud. Last week, federal authorities announced their case against the owners of American Premier Laboratory in Reseda, a dry medical testing lab that purchased hack patient information in order to submit millions of dollars in phony claims for lab testing that never took place. This scam was thought to be the work of Eurasian organized crime that hacked the information. 
The perpetrator remains a fugitive and may be hiding out in places as far away as Moscow. But this case illustrates how cybercrime is fast becoming the next frontier in medical fraud. According to the HIPAA records, nearly 21 million Americans have had their electronic medical records stolen or lost since 2009. The largest single theft was from TRICARE, the Defense Department's civilian health care program for Armed Forces members, retirees, and their dependents. In 2011, 4.9 million TRICARE members' electronic medical records entered into the public sphere after one of their subcontractors lost a huge cache of backup tapes. The tapes contained sensitive personal data such as clinical notes, laboratory test results, and prescriptions. In May 2012, federal prosecutors charged a medical technician at Washington's Howard University Medical Center with the systematic theft of patients' personal information, including Medicaid ID numbers. This information was then sold to third parties. Shortly after the Howard University theft was announced, the Utah Health Department announced a massive data breach. Eastern European hackers had stolen 280,000 Utah residents' personal identification, social security numbers, diagnosis information, and medical billing information. Financial information such as credit card numbers or checking account numbers were not compromised. However, a much more worrying and dangerous form of cybercrime is creating counterfeit medical devices or hacking existing ones. Counterfeit medical devices are a huge problem. According to the World Health Organization, 8% of medical devices worldwide are counterfeit as of 2010. Although the counterfeit insulin pumps, contact lenses, and surgical equipment are mainly found abroad, Many find their way stateside due to insecure supply chains. The Food and Drug Administration has been circumspect about counterfeit medical devices being found in the United States. However, their British counterparts, the MHRA, have publicly warned about the risks of counterfeit devices. Electronic medical record theft is already commonplace, while poorly designed medical technology and counterfeit devices create new opportunities for 21st century criminals. An investigation into one of the nation's biggest hospital chains is refocusing attention on concerns about overtreatment for chest pain. HCA Holdings Incorporated announced to their stockholders that investigators want information about heart procedures performed at some of its 163 hospitals. Federal authorities suspect that some patients got needless angioplasties and stents. About 700,000 angioplasties are done each year, and almost half of them are elective, performed on patients with stable chest pain. A landmark 2007 study said that drug treatment worked just as well as surgery at preventing heart attacks and related deaths. But evidence suggests the number of surgeries have not dropped dramatically since this study. An angioplasty can cost $20,000 and usually involves inserting a small mesh stent to keep arteries propped open. Often an overnight hospital stay is needed. Drug treatment may take a few months to relieve pain and often requires several medicines, including aspirin and statins, but most have generic versions costing hundreds of dollars a year, not thousands. But many patients mistakenly think elective angioplasties will do a better job of keeping them alive. 
Internal HCA documents show that some of the hospital chain's patients got invasive treatment even though they had no significant heart disease. Nationwide data suggests that about 8% of non-emergency angioplasties are done inappropriately on patients who should be getting drug treatment alone instead. Needless stenting was among procedures to be avoided on a checklist released earlier this year by nine medical societies concerned about overtreatment. Dr. Sanjay Cowell, a cardiologist at Cedars-Sinai Heart Institute in Los Angeles, says he has estimated that about $3 billion could be saved each year nationwide under scenarios that include limiting angioplasties to patients who don't respond to pills. And in regulatory news, a new CWCI study based on a review of pharmaceutical data from a sample of over 9 million prescriptions dispensed to California injured workers confirms results of earlier research that noted the surging use of opioid analgesics such as oxycodone, morphine, and fentanyl from 2002 to 2008. Data updated through 2011, however, indicate a very recent downturn. But CWCI cautions that the decline in Schedule II utilization and cost that began in the second half of 2011 should be interpreted with caution as there are other factors that can influence utilization. These factors include billing cycles for year-end services, data submission delay due to processing utilization review decisions, and liens. It is also possible that despite the lack of any significant or explicit changes in California workers' compensation legislation or regulations pertaining to opioids, efforts by workers' compensation insurers and self-insured employers to modify medical cost containment oversight and tighten controls over the use of Schedule II painkillers may be having an impact. In addition, the strong spotlight of publicity and the growing awareness of the problems with Schedule II medications also may have contributed by making doctors, injured workers, and payors more cautious in regard to the use of these drugs. Continued monitoring of opioid analgesics in the California workers' compensation system will reveal the actual trend in utilization of these scheduled drugs. And in financial news, the WCIRB's governing committee will recommend among an average pure premium rate of $2.68 per $100 of payroll, which is a 12% increase. The WCIRB will submit its pure premium rate filing to the California Department of Insurance. The deterioration is attributable to continued adverse loss development, elevated indemnity claim frequency, an increase in the projection of future loss inflation, an increase in allocated loss adjustment expenses, and lower wage growth forecasts. The recommendation reflected in the filing does not include the impact of proposed workers' compensation reform legislation under consideration in Sacramento. The Governing Committee also accepted several classification and rating committee recommendations, including the adoption of the WCIRB's comprehensive evaluation of California's dual wage classifications draft report. These recommendations will be included in the filing. And in other news, the DWC has scheduled an electronic filing expo in San Diego. 
The Division of Workers' Compensation, in conjunction with its vendor partners, will host an electronic filing expo in San Diego on Wednesday, August 29th. The event is free and anyone interested in e-filing or jet file is encouraged to attend. Electronic filing is the fastest way to get documents into EAMS, DWC's electronic case management system for the workers' compensation courts. There are two ways to file electronically, e-forms and jet file. Jet file is best suited to filers of the six most used court forms, while e-forms are available for all forms. The August 29th Expo will provide information about and demonstrations of both filing methods. The Expo will take place at the DWC San Diego District Office, 7575 Metropolitan Drive, Suite 300, San Diego, California, 92108. No registration is necessary. Filers can drop by in any time frame between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. The program will repeat throughout the day. There will be a one-hour lunch break from noon till 1. The Division of Workers' Compensation will participate in the California e-bill webinar educational series organized by the California Medical Association, the California Orthopedic Association, the American Medical Association, and hosted by Jopari Solutions. This four-part educational program will be held up through September 6th. Anyone wishing to view the free webinar must register for the program on the California Medical Association's website. Electronic medical billing regulations for workers' compensation will become effective on October 18th. Claims administrators must be ready to participate in electronic billing, but electronic billing is optional for medical providers. In order to facilitate implementation of electronic medical billing, the DWC has posted a list of electronic medical billing payment providers on their website. And with that, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.